Well, good morning. Like uh, Travis said at the very beginning, my name is Wilson. It is really good to be back with you guys. I feel like every time I come out here, there's something brand new. Uh, so you guys built a barn since I was here like a couple of months ago. It's like super impressive. So uh, really, really fun to see. It's, it's great to be with you uh, this morning. So last week, um, if you were here, Father Ben preached on Jesus's invitation to, uh, to his easy yoke, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And this week, we're kind of backfilling uh, that reading. What we just read out of the gospel are the words that Jesus said just before that gracious invitation. And it's funny, his tone is very different here, right? Uh, not, not so gentle, right? Very different kind of tone. And we're going to see why um, in just a minute. It's the same melody, um, but kind of in a different key. So I've been uh, getting into Flannery O'Connor for the first time. I'm from the Deep South. I'm from Mississippi. There, I should have already read Flannery O'Connor a bunch, but somehow I'm just now getting into her, and she's quickly becoming one of my favorite authors. My favorite short story of hers is a little short story called Revelation. Okay? Uh, in Revelation, the main character is this woman named Mrs. Turpin. Okay? She's this upstanding uh, woman in the Deep South, probably sometime in the 50s or 60s, Half of this story takes place in a doctor's waiting room where she's sitting with a group of others. And we hear Mrs. Turpin's interactions with all these other people, both uh, spoken interactions and her internal dialogue that's going on this whole time. And it becomes clear that Mrs. Turpin is a nice, upstanding woman who judges absolutely everybody. (laughs) All that matters is being a good person, okay? Which she is. But on top of that, God has blessed her, right? She's so grateful that she wasn't born white trash or black or ugly. And all along, while you're hearing kind of her internal dialogue and getting to know this woman, there's this young lady who's giving her a nastier and nastier look. Like she's somehow seeing through Mrs. Turpin's outward politeness into the darkness of her heart. And it's right in the middle of when Mrs. Turpin is vocally pouring out her gratitude to God, like the Pharisee in in another one of Jesus' parables. She's pouring out her gratitude that she has a little bit of everything and the good sense to use it, good disposition to boot. Okay, She's pouring out her praises to God when a book comes sailing across the waiting room and hits her right above the eye. And it's thrown by the girl who's been giving her this nasty look who has now jumped on top of her and begins choking her. And it turns out that the girl's name is, classic Flannery O'Connor, Mary Grace. Mary Grace. Jesus' words today are a little bit like a book flying across the room. Right? It feels like a book coming to hit us on the forehead. Elsewhere, Jesus is so gentle. In the very next verses, he's so gentle, but not so here. And we're going to see why. Just to give a little bit of background, okay? In the passage right before this one, right before what we read in the gospel today, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And he says this, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah to come. In other words, Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is the last signpost in a long list of signposts that were all pointing to this moment to Jesus, to the Messiah, the hinge moment of all history. And that, 
demands some sort of response. And then Jesus, grieved, frustrated, names the fact that no matter what he does, the majority of people that he is interacting with are not responding to him with any sort of depth. And in typical Jesus fashion, uh, he says this by way of illustration first. If you've got a Bible with you, you can look at Matthew 11 uh, and verse 16. Jesus has just said that about John the Baptist. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So people failed to play along with either gospel tune, either the dirge of self-denial or Jesus' flute song of celebration. Both tunes working in tandem to turn hearts away from the kingdom of self and to the kingdom of God. But the would-be hearers didn't respond to Jesus. John, don't depress us. Leave us in our self-contentment. Jesus, don't make us rejoice. Leave us in our self-contentment. And then Jesus moves away from metaphors and straight into prophet mode. And he sharply denounces the cities where he's been doing all these amazing works, right? Cities that were enamored with him for a time but remained unchanged. Their hearts remained untransformed. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Capernaum, you'll be brought down to Hades. All these sharp denunciations, right? And these are not cities that Jesus dislikes. These are not rival towns where he he doesn't like the way they dress and the way they talk over there. No, these, these are his towns, if you read the Gospels. These are towns where his friends are from. These are towns where he worked his trade, where he worked in the market, where he knew people by name. Places where he brought his grace in full force because he loved them. Places where the mute praised the Lord with their voices and the blind saw and the deaf heard. The paralyzed ran about and the dead came back alive. And people were astonished at these things, no doubt. But something in the inner heart in those places remained untransformed, unmoved, by the music of the gospel. And so Jesus just pours out. Woe is a, is a word of grief and frustration. Woe to you. You see, what Jesus is doing with these hard words, and what we're getting to listen in on today, is him addressing a lethal spiritual problem. And it's lethal because it can have people hearing and seeing and yet not hearing and not seeing, nothing changing in their lives. It's a, it's a message that is meant to startle. That's why it's here for us today still, so that we can listen in. It's a message to startle, and it's a message that startles really not outsiders, but insiders, right? People that are in front of these things all the time. And it's meant to point at us and say, where is your heart? Where is your heart right now? For any community who has experienced the music of the gospel, 
in the presence of Jesus, we read this and we are forced to ask, are we responding? What is, what is my life looking like? How is my life different because I'm hearing the music of the gospel? Am I on the trajectory toward the kingdom of self? Or am I on the trajectory toward the kingdom of God? So, that's what we're looking at today. The gospel music is playing. And it calls for a changed heart. A changed life in response. And, of course, in this passage, we, we learn by negative example, right? Hearts that refused response. And so we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the posture of an unchanging heart. And then we're going to look at the posture of a heart that is ready for change. Okay. So first, the posture of an unchanging heart. Okay, there are a lot of reasons why a heart might not change. The, heart is, the human heart is a very, very complicated thing. But in this passage, we see two heart postures in particular that seem to be present in the folks who wouldn't respond to Jesus. And they're this. Sloth and spiritual pride. Okay? First, sloth. When we hear sloth, I think we uh, tend to think of like a couch potato, right? Just sheer laziness, right? But this isn't really it. The busiest person in the world can be afflicted with the spiritual disease of sloth. Um, Dorothy Sayers defines sloth this way. She says this, It's that whole poisoning of the will, which beginning with indifference and an attitude of I couldn't care less, extends to the deliberate refusal of joy and culminates in morbid introspection and despair. Deliberate refusal of joy. It's this state where I can't be bothered with heart change. I am self-content. I am self-focused. Uninterested in some good flooding into my world and trying to change where I'm at. That's the heart of sloth. So for example, John the Baptist arriving. Here comes John playing the dirge of self-denial. He came neither eating nor drinking. He preached contentment with what you have, denying yourself good things in order to provide for other people. And many people were shaken awake by this message. Tax collectors and sinners, Roman soldiers came to him and said, what, are we, what, what should we do in response to this? But many people didn't like this message. They didn't mourn. They liked their place of self-contentment, of comfort. And so they say, this message is crazy. He must have a demon. There's no way we're listening to him. I'm not going to get up off the curb and, and mourn to his music. And so here comes Jesus, playing a very different tune, the flute song of celebration. Here is God at long last, and he will sit at table with you, tax collector, and he'll sit at the table with you, sinner. He's a physician for the sick. He has total authority to forgive all of your sins and wipe your slate clean at the drop of a hat. Get up for joy and celebrate. And many did. Many were healed. Many were forgiven. Many were amazed by these things. But many didn't like that. I don't want to get up and dance. He's a drunkard. He's a glutton. He hangs out with those unwashed sinners that I have no interest in being around. Whatever gospel music is being played, whether dirge 
or flute song, a heart that is weighed down by sloth will keep you on the curb and will keep you from deep transformational change. Okay, that's the first posture of an unchanging heart. And the second one we see here is spiritual pride. And this is most clearly seen in the cities that Jesus denounces. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum saw amazing things, right? Fascinated for a time. But when Jesus turned his gaze to them, to the people who saw all these amazing things, they turned their gaze away. It was something about those spiritually privileged places that was not open to the transformation that Jesus was trying to enact. Whereas pagan cities, Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, Jesus mentions later, these would have been struck to the heart if Jesus would have traveled there. Because even in the middle of all the vices that they had of greed and wealth and, and all those kind of things, all, that, all their immorality, one thing they had going for them, they lacked spiritual pride. They lacked spiritual pride. And so they would have had a certain openness and receptivity to what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was offering. And they would have run toward him. And so Jesus says the day of judgment is much more bearable for places like that than for the places that were spiritually privileged because the sin of spiritual pride is lethal. Pride is essentially just self-regard. It's looking at oneself. And when you are looking at oneself, yourself, when you're so bent inward, curved inward on yourself, it leaves you unaware of the movement of God's grace. It leaves you uninterested in how grace is bearing upon you, what grace is trying to call out of you and call you into. Pride makes a heart unpliable, unyielding to the grace of God. So hence a book flying through the air, right? Pride is particularly dangerous for people like us who sit in front of God's word, who hear the music of the gospel day in and day out. Particularly dangerous for people like me who stand up here and talk about important things like this. There's an intense danger that I'm talking about this stuff and my heart is completely unchanged by it, right? Spiritual pride is a, is a deadly one and it's so pernicious. And so Jesus calls it out in these cities. So two heart postures that are lethal to the spiritual life, life, sloth and pride. Both of them weigh down the heart, making us unable to be affected by the movement of grace. And it may be that as we hear these things, we hear some things that are familiar to us, right? These things sneak into our complicated hearts. And so our question is, what do we do about that? What does a heart look like that is ready for change? And the reason that I phrase it like that, it's not a, it's not a, a heart that's changing itself. It's, it's the posture of a heart that is ready for change. I phrase it like that because all the great spiritual writers throughout Christian history, drawing down on the New Testament, agree that a change of heart is a work of God. It is not a human endeavor. A changed heart is far too difficult for any person to really enact. God changes hearts. The Spirit of God puts a new man in place of the old man. Period. Right? And the good news is that this is exactly what God wants to do. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit plan from eternity past to do this. 
to change the human heart. The transformation is a gift. However, it is not a passive process. If you read Paul's letters, it is clear that the fruit of repentance, that this real transformation worked down into the yeast of the human heart, is something that God involves us in, right? It takes intentionality. It takes vigilance, singular purpose. There's an urgency to the Christian path. And we're not talking about an urgency to get God on our side. We're not talking about an urgency to to earn something, to earn a gift. We're talking about an urgency to put the massive treasure heap that we've been handed to good use. It's like the work of a gardener, right? The soil that a gardener works with is a gift of God. The seed that a gardener has is, is a gift. The sun's warmth, the rain, the growth, all of these things are God, right? But the work belongs to the gardener. The work of, of toil is entrusted to the gardener. And in this little fiction, the garden is the field of our heart. And what we harvest out of it is abundant and eternal life. So then, we've got to take a good look at ourselves and diagnose where our heart is at. So, first, if you find yourself indifferent to the music of the gospel, if you're here today and you just feel like, man, I've been stuck, unaffected by this for a long time. I'm I'm in this season of spiritual drought, okay? It could be a lot of reasons, but one reason it could be is sloth. It could be a spiritual disease of sloth. So can you hear the dirge of the gospel, right? The gospel convicts us of sin, and it calls for a death to ourselves. That's internal. Externally, the dirge of the gospel is looking evil full in the face and opposing it and mourning it. Christianity is no stranger to sorrow. Jesus is a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. There's a dirge that we have to hear. At the same time, can you hear with your other ear the celebration song of the gospel? Jesus frees captives. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Our celebration in sorrow waters that we are comfortable swimming in. Or are we sitting on the curb as these songs are being played, right? Are we much more often gnawed by anxiety about things that are coming from the kingdom of self and less from the kingdom of God? Are we marked more by irritability? Do we lazily dream about our own, our own comfort and ease? I'm giving these examples really easily because these are things that pop up in my heart again and again and again. And I see them there. I see them growing in this garden. For those of us stuck on the curb, despite the song playing, bidding us to play, this insight might be a good good starting place. It may be that the center of our being is ourselves, when it ought to be Christ. It might be that we profess that Christ is the center, but in lived reality, it has become ourselves. It may be that we are unable to respond because we are in this habit of lavishing thought and care on ourselves instead of on God and instead of on other people. We may have gotten into this habit of always asking, am I happy? Am I satisfied? 
is my will per- stubbornly set on my own personal happiness and comfort and ease, right? And for those of us who would respond, yeah, duh, I'm like looking to be happy and satisfied. <laughs> Just a reminder that the message of Jesus is so opposite of that. He says if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. And that really, are, that really is the words of life. It really is the path of life. So that's sloth. Second, and lastly, it may be that you're stuck. Maybe that you and me are stuck. And transformation isn't happening because spiritual pride is in the way. And now what do we do about that? And I think the best way to get at this, actually, is by a story. And so I want us to return uh, one last time to our friend Mrs. Turpin from the beginning. Okay, Mrs. Turpin is hit on the forehead with a book. Uh, And she goes home after this. She goes home, but she can't get this startling run-in with, uh, with Mary Grace out of her head, as best she tries to say that it was just this crazy girl, right? She starts to become angrier and angrier as she begins to see it more clearly for what it was, a message from God. Grace threw a book at her. Finally, uh, she lives on a farm, and she's feeding her pigs in the evening, and Mrs. Turpin shouts at God, Who do you think you are? Just a side note, Flannery Connor said in one of her letters that she loves Mrs. Turpin, doesn't think she's a villain. She's like, it takes a serious kind of person to shout at God, who do you think you are? And it's at this point that Mrs. Turpin sees a vision. The sun finally slipped behind the tree line, and Mrs. Turpin remained there with her gaze bent. At last she lifted her head. There's only a purple streak in the sky, cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, bands of black people in white robes, battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized as once, at once as those who, like herself and her husband, had always had a little bit of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were singing on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces, that even their virtues were being burned away. Humility is the antidote to pride. Grace so often comes in a form we don't like. Jesus is the gentle and lowly, always. Even when he is saying, woe to you, and we're having to overhear and say, why do we have to listen to this? And maybe that grace is coming to us in a form that can wake us up so that we can get on the road to true life again, so that we can course correct. Jesus has the words of life. And so I'd encourage you this week, take some extended time to sit with him in prayer, especially in silent prayer, just listening. Take some extended time to interact with him and his word and, and see what he's really like again. And be prepared for a healing wound from God. Because that's the first step 
to repentance. And it's the first step towards joy and to laying down your heavy burdens and coming to him for rest. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.